This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. The guest of my podcast this week is Orrin Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. One of my big passions is about democratizing access to data. Thus far, data has been a real gate to innovation. And folks who have who are data rich can innovate. But for most innovators, they don't have access to data and, and it really hampers innovation. And I'd like to see a world where, where the data itself is not a gate to innovation but ingenuity is the core gate to innovation. If we don't democratize access to data, we're going to have much less innovation in the future. And so democratizing access to data will both increase the amount of innovation and also disperse more widely the winners from the innovation. This is Oren. He's an American entrepreneur, an angel investor and author. He founded his first company, Kyber Systems in his junior year at UC Berkeley as a way to pay for school. He sold the company in 1997, and from there he founded Bridgepath, which he sold in 2002. He became the chairman of Stonebrick Group, co-founder of Rapleaf in 2006, and left that same company in 2012 to run the Rapleaf spin-off called LiveRam. That became the largest middleware company that connects marketing applications. In 2014, he sold his company to Axiom for an amount of $310 million. Oren is an angel investor in over 120 technology companies. He holds a Bachelor in Engineering in Industrial Engineering and Operations Research from the UC of Berkeley. It's the story behind his next venture, SafeGraph, that became the trigger for this podcast. SafeGraph was founded to democratize access to data, in particular to help unlock innovation. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Oren to my podcast. We explore why data, or better the lack of it, is becoming the roadblock for innovation. We also address the biggest challenge around data, its accuracy, and what it takes for companies to deliver upon that dream of the perfect data. By listening to this podcast, you will learn three things. Firstly, that to become the go-to source for innovation, you have to build your entire company around the core theme, and that becomes your focus to be the best and stay the best. Secondly, why it is key to understand your role in the value chain. Are you a solver or an enabler? That defines your value. And thirdly, why you should treat every employee as a Warren Buffett, a capital alligator. Their goal is to spend money to get leverage for themselves, for their team, for the total company. Welcome Oren on my podcast and thank you for making the time available today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 
Well, it's a pleasure. And I've, I've heard a couple of things about your company that's really triggered me to, to invite you. So yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we start, can you give a little bit of an introduction about yourself, but kind of primarily about like what drives you? What is your passion? And how did you end up, well, kind of creating the businesses that you created? Sure. One of my big passions is about democratizing access to data. So just like in recent years, how compute has been democratized and more and more innovators can get access to compute, I've got a passion around democratizing access to data. Thus far, data has been a real gate to innovation. And folks who, have, who are data rich can innovate, but for most innovators, they don't have access to data and, and it really hampers innovation. And I'd like to see a world where, where the data itself is not a gate to innovation, but ingenuity is the core gate to innovation. Ingenuity, can you give an example of that? Or can you kind of elaborate a little bit on that? Well, if you're, whatever, you're, whatever type of area that you want to innovate in, data is really, really important. So whether you want to innovate in cancer research or whether you want to innovate in some sort of geospatial satellite systems or whether you want to innovate in speech recognition or self-driving cars, yep. having core data about what happened in the past is really, really important. And if you can't get access to that data, you're going to be really hampered on innovation. There's a small number of companies today, maybe 12 or so companies in the world that have just amazing access to all the world's data. And then basically everybody else, other companies, organizations, researchers, academics, even governments have very little access to data. And so they're really hampered on innovation. And if we don't democratize access to data, we're going to have much less innovation in the future. And most of the innovation will happen in maybe these 12 companies. And so democratizing access to data will both increase the amount of innovation and also disperse more widely the winners from the innovation. I can, I think, can only agree with that. It's a fascinating mission you have, by the way. And from all the, the, the podcasts that I've done so far, which are typically all around, yeah, I mean, topics that, that are led by, by the availability of data. I can only see that this is incredibly important. Well, much more than it was, let's say, five to 10 years ago. So is it correct that, that you were sort of the founding father or at least very early in the days creating the concept of data as a service? It's certainly something that I've been thinking about for a long time. So LiveRamp, which is an early company in the, the data world, is a very successful company in the, in the marketing middleware space. And now I run SafeGraph, which is in the geospatial data around physical places. Okay, so you've, you've taken a niche here. So, so yeah, I've been talking about your new your company. I mean, since, since when did you start the company, SafeGraph? We started the company in 2016, so a little yeah. less than three years ago. Okay. And specifically about geospatial data, what is the big idea behind SafeGraph? The big idea around SafeGraph is to democratize access to data. Yeah. So we want all innovators to be able to access really great data. Data companies do need to be organized around some sort of theme. And there's not that many themes. So you can be organized around a person. You could be organized around an organization. You could be organized around some sort of product skew. You could be organized around some sort of procedure. We're organized around a place, a physical place. And there's maybe a few other things that one can be organized around, but you need to have some sort of common key that you can join your data. And so you can't just have like data about everything. You need to have some sort of organization system for you to be a great data company. 
So, I mean, at the end, it's all about differentiation, right? Yeah. Rather than go wide, go deep. That's what I think what you're doing around place. So can you give a couple of examples around the data around place? Is uh... Yeah, you can have, I mean, there's lots of different types of data that you might want about a physical place. So first of all, there's a lot of physical places in the world. There are actually more physical places than there are people in the world. And the physical places also change quite a bit. So the average person in Europe might last for over 80 years. The average place often lasts for maybe one one tenth of that time. So places die at a much faster rate than people, and they're reborn at a much faster rate than people. And so you just have a lot more churn in places. They're hard to track, but they're in many ways a lot a lot more interesting than people because we all interact with these places. There's also no privacy around a place, whereas a person has a lot of privacy. You know, the the mountain or something doesn't have isn't as entitled to privacy. And the the places are they change in nature and they have a lot of other kind of like very interesting frameworks around them. Yeah, I understand that. So no companies that that work with you, the moment they start to kind of get access to your to your data, what do you see as the opportunity with those companies? Can you give an example of, of one that, that didn't have access and got the access and did something remarkable with it? Sure. So we do a lot of stuff in local search. So um, if you search for like pizza places near me in most of the local search applications on the web, that's SafeGraph data. Satellite companies are our bread and butter. So they might want to know precisely where all the Walmarts are or something like that. We do a lot of stuff in ad tech. Uh, a lot of the biggest hedge funds and banks use our data to understand where all these places are. We we work a lot with big telcos and big mobile carriers. Most of the biggest ones in the U.S. are, are SafeGraph clients. We do a lot of stuff with academia. So from Stanford University to NYU to Berkeley, we use our data for a whole bunch of different types of projects. We work a lot with cities and public transportation. So anyone who wants to understand how places are interacting. Today, we just focus on places in the U.S. Okay. We're about to roll out places in Canada. But our intention is to hopefully one day have every place in the world. Well, wow. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, that's an art in itself to get access to the data and yeah, to, to gather it. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think you are driving around like Google with cars and, and just pick up <laughs> where everything is, right? That's right. So you have to do it in a smart way. So the old way would be going around with cars and looking at it or having you know, 3,000 person call center calling places and asking them for information and things like that. And for a startup, that's, that's either not tenable or just not a smart way to deploy capital. And yeah. so you have to come up with smarter ways of gathering the data and then matching data and then dealing with conflicting data. So I mean, well, I'm always interested when I hear the word smart. So what is, what is the ingenuity behind your product then? I mean, how do you get at that data? Or is it a real trade secret? Well, it's, I mean, data lives in lots of different places. Yeah. And so if you think of a data about a physical place, it will live in all sorts of different things. So for instance, the... If you want to learn about a Starbucks on 555 Main Street, well, you can go to the Starbucks website and that will tell you something about that Starbucks in 555 Main Street. Maybe you can also go to the city 
of Cleveland where that Starbucks is in, and they may have some data about the Starbucks website. Maybe they know what last time it was inspected, or they may have some public tax records about that. You might be able to get some satellite data, which can help you understand the rooftop of the Starbucks on 555 Main Street. There may be many other data sets that are out there, maybe different reviews, or there might be news about that or other types of things. Some of them you might have to pay for, some of them you can crawl. And so we today ingest 13,000 data sources that we have. That Starbucks on 555 Main Street might be in 20 of those 13,000 data sources. And then you have a matching problem because matching is really, really hard. So doing some sort of entity matching across data sets is difficult. And we want to match all 20 out of 20 and not 15 out of 20, but also not 25 out of 20. And then after you, have, after you do the matching, then you have conflicting data. And so you have a problem of understanding the, the data that might conflict in different sources. One source might say the Starbucks opens at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday, and the other one says it opens at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday. Well, what's correct? How do you understand what's right? How does that change over time? How do you feed? How do you how do you check the data, and then how do you feed that data back into your algorithms? So all those things become difficult, especially if you don't want to throw thousands of people at that problem. Well, for sure. And by by the way, I mean the fact that you are talking about this triggers a couple of other things for me. One of them was. We're talking about entity relations. I had recently had Jeff Jonas on my podcast, the CEO of Sensing, yep. who is reinventing that space. But another person actually that has, that has gone live today on the podcast is Vikram Modgil, who has actually started a foundation in order to get rid of bias in data and in AI in this case. So, I mean, the fact that your data has truth in there and that you're, you can actually offer it with, with a high sense of, okay, this is, this is the correct view of the world. Is that a big problem? Is, is that something that, well, that you pay extra attention to? Well, a data company is a very backward-looking company. Uh-huh. So a data company is really trying to figure out what has happened, and, yeah. and it's really about facts. So the, the SafeGraph model is that we predict the, the past is our model. Yeah. Now, then companies will take our data and then predict the future with the data. That becomes more fraught with different biases that may happen. Now, the, the hard part about predicting the past is actually being true and actually having, having your facts correct and having veracity. Just because it happened in the past doesn't mean that you are going to know exactly what happened. So when did the store actually start? Did the store start in 2015 or 2014? And all the different kind of facts about a particular place is, is actually sometimes very difficult to ascertain. And so you need different ways of being able to, to try to be true. You'll never be 100% true. And then you need to have a culture in your company about just focusing on getting to truth. And it takes a lot of humility to do that in a, in a data company because data companies are not the stars. The data company, if you think of a Formula One race, the data company is like the pit crew. They're very important in the Formula One race, but no one ever interviews them. No one talks about them. No one knows who they are. They're just this kind of like the the unseen heroes that are behind the scenes. And so you need to have a lot of humility because you're not the star of the show. The star of the show are the innovators who then take that data and do something really extraordinary with it. Let me make a small interruption here. Oren just made an excellent remark about the role his company fulfills in the marketplace. They are an enabler, not a solver. This is an extremely important realization, 
one that many software businesses get wrong. It's only after this realization you can start to position your business in a remarkable way and get traction in your marketplace. If you want to get some fresh guidance about how you can position your company in a way that makes you stand out and grow desire around your solution, just drop me a note at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. Yeah, and I've seen extreme examples of that. And typically what you see is the more data you get, you, you, the, kind of, uh, the, the value you can start to create actually exponentially grows with it. That's right. That's so right. you take the, the worst algorithms with the best data, beat the best algorithms with the worst data. That's fun to think about. And I think you're right on that one. <laughs> yeah. So even if you want to do something very simple like speech recognition or something, or you know, trying to figure out if a photo has cats versus non-cats, if you just have more labeled data of cats versus non-cats, you're just going to be better. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Not that I like the example of this, but I, I get your point. So in building your company since 2016, is it actually a product? Is there a product coming with, the, with, your, with your services or is it just pure data? No, it's pure data. Pure data. So we, okay. we just sell data. And again, that's a very, it's a very difficult business to just sell data because you're not, you're not actually solving the problem. You're just an ingredient to an innovator. So if you think of us, like we sell to world-class chefs and we're selling very high quality truffles, high quality butter to those chefs who then take the, that, those high quality ingredients and turn them into amazing dishes. Yeah. And so you have, to, you have to be convincing these chefs that your, your ingredients are really good. But in the end, you're not, you're not creating these dishes yourself. You're not solving the end problem. You're just giving them the ingredients. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating that, I mean, in this time of age, companies like yours have an existence because, I mean, 10 years ago, it was sort of unthinkable. Why would you start a company like that? And now everybody is like hungry for that data. And like you're saying, it's, it's for the majority of companies in the world, it's completely inaccessible. I mean, where do you start? I like That's right. And most, most companies today are, if you, think of, if you think of what companies have been really focused on in the data world in the past 10 years, they've mostly been focused on how to use their own data better. And a lot of companies have gotten really good at that. And, and that's because there's more and more tools that are out there. You can use you know, from Tableau to Snowflake to, to Spark to, you know, you go down all the different tools that are out there to allow you to crunch and analyze your own data much, much better. And as these companies start to get better and better and better at learning about their own data, they're now starting to get hungry for external data because most companies only know about 0.01% of the world. Even huge companies like Walmart have a very limited view of what's happening in the world. They really they know what's happening in their stores, what's happening on their website, but that's about it. And as they want to expand from that, then adding this external data can be very, very helpful for them to innovate further. So, so, I mean, as an innovator, and it can, of course, be an end-user organization, but, I mean, well, first of all, who are most of your clients? Are these companies software companies, or are they also end-user organizations that yeah, happen to, to, to need that, that data on their own? Today, our clients tend to be very sophisticated, mostly data science or machine learning teams that okay. know how to ingest data. So there are some retailers that are our clients, but most retailers are not able to do that. We sell to hedge funds, but we really sell to the most innovative hedge funds. And 
there's really only of the 11,000 hedge funds in the US, there's only about 100 of them today that buy alternative data. Now, there are another 500 that are making investments to buy alternative data. And maybe over the next five years, we're going to see another magnitude of companies that can buy data. There are really great retailers like Walmart that really know how to buy data and can use that data and extremely sophisticated. But the vast majority of retailers today aren't yet at that point. But over the next five years, I think more and more of them will be able to use them. They're making the investments. The tools are becoming better. And they're, they have a higher willingness to do that because the amount that they're able to get from their own data is diminishing. But they're getting better and better at getting insights from their own data. And now they're looking for external data to help them more. Exactly. So how is that process going? It fascinates me. I mean, at some point in time, you come to the realization I'm missing something. But if you don't know, you don't know. Have you got any anecdotes on that? Well, yeah. So the sales process for a data company is, is difficult because you're often qualifying out companies when you talk to them. You'll talk to a company and you can ask them a few leading questions and you can know very, very quickly, usually within one or two minutes of the conversation, whether they can buy your data or not, whether they're sophisticated enough to be able to use your data. I mean, often, often the answer is they're not yet at the point of being able to buy their data. And based on the answers to the questions, they might be three months away or six months away or 12 months away, or sometimes even longer away from being able to buy your data. And so then you have to tell them, frankly, hey, you're not ready yet to buy our data. We really appreciate your interest in us, but you're doing here, it sounds like you're doing a lot of the right things to be able to buy our data in the future. And let's have another conversation in six months when you're a little bit further along. So what are examples of a company that is maybe not ready to, to, to buy the data. You need to have a level of maturity, I would say. Yeah, you need, to, you need to, well, first of all, if a company has never bought external data, maybe if you're a data company, they're gonna, you're going to be the first, but that's a good, that's a good way to know that, that they're, they're at the early stages of it. They may not even have any muscle of how to do it. They may not have the paperwork internally from the legal side to understand how to do it. They may not even have the security internally to keep that data secure. There could be a whole bunch of different things that, that makes them not yet ready to buy that data. It also could just be that they don't have the systems in place. They don't know how to crunch data. They don't have the ability to do it, or they don't yet have the personnel in place to go do it. There may be a, a certain quality of people that they need to be able to get the most out of that data. And so you can ask them really, what tools are you using? How are you using different data sources today? How are you evaluating your own data, et cetera? And that can give you a, a really good sense of where they are in, sure. the, in the buying pattern. Understood, understood. So, I mean, one of the questions I uh, typically always go into a little bit more depth is like, what, are the, what is the top thing or the top three things that, that you've done in order to make your product, and I know it's a service, a data service, to make that a remarkable one? Is there, is there anything that, that you did specifically in order to make it stand out? The most important thing in the world of data is that, and there's really not even a close number two, the most important thing number in data is truth. So is your data true? And it's never, of course, 100% true. And then what are you doing to make it more true over time? Yeah. And one of the things that I think data companies can do and should do is publish how true they are and and then publish every month or every quarter or every week or at some sort of regular cadence 
how they're more true today than they were before. And that is actually sometimes can be somewhat humiliating because as you're publishing, as you're basically saying we're more true today than we were a month ago, that means a month ago you had a lot of problems. And so you have to point out your problems and shine a light on those problems. Hey, here's all the areas where we were messed up in a month ago and now we fixed which basically to any buyer will tell them, okay, you're still messed up. You still have lots of things that aren't true. And you have yeah. to be open and honest with your customers saying, look, we have a lot of, we're never going to be hundred percent true. We always have areas that we need to do better in and here's how we get better. So at SafeGraph, we are improving at a rate of somewhere between 10 and 20% per month. And that is a, a rate that we've been on for over the last year. And we show our customers how we improve every month, how we take their input in, how we take other input in, and then we shine a light on our problems. We had a scenario where we, um, in Christmas last year, we one of our data sets is store hours. So when is a store open and when does a store close? Yep. And of course, on Christmas, many stores have different hours than they do on other days of the, of the year. So on a typical Tuesday, a store might be open from eight to five. On Christmas, it might be open from 12 to three, or it might be open 24 hours that day. And so that's a good example of something that we got completely wrong. We were sending folks through different local search channels to retailers that either weren't open or were telling them they weren't open when they were open. And obviously, a lot of people were very upset at us. We had another scenario where we, we, one of the things that we do is we have the shape of every place and we have a polygon and then we have the precise geocoordinates of that polygon. We had one cafe that we put in the middle of a lake and we were sending a very nice gentleman driving directions via one of our clients to, to drive into the middle of the lake. Luckily, he was smart enough to stop and not drive into the lake. But these are the types of these are the types of things that we're not proud of. Like we have these errors in our data set, but we publish and we let people know, hey, here's what we got wrong last month. Here's here's why we think we got it wrong, and here's how we're fixing it in the future so we get it less wrong in the future. Yeah, well, I think this is something that uh, every every shop of any can sort of re- relate to because the, at the end, you know, there's no product in the world that is that is perfect. There are always bugs. That's and, right. Uh, but of course, there are gaps in, in functionality, which I think is, is sort of a similar topic, but yeah, in a different ballgame at the end. But 20% improvement per month is incredible. So, so what do you do in order to, to keep that improvement at such a high pace? Are there any specific things you do there? Well, there's a few things that you need to do. So one is you need a way of knowing, of getting feedback when you're wrong. And luckily, we have a large number of very high traffic consumer applications that use our data. And when we're wrong, they call us and scream about, scream at us or Slack us or email us or and we have a whole system for them to tell us when we're wrong. So they don't always tell us when we're right, but in fact, they almost never do that. But they are very uh, loud when we're wrong and we're wrong often. So we hear from sure. them all the time about why we're wrong and, and how we're wrong about yeah. things. So getting that feedback is, is important. And, and having internal graders that can grade it and having humans to help you with that. So that, that's, that's step one. Step two is having a culture and a will to really focus on that. It's amazing to me, most data companies, historical data companies that have been around, 
veracity is not something that they really focus on. Most of these data companies, especially in the marketing world, where data companies have traditionally been in, you know, some of some of these data companies are less than ten percent accurate. And so they just don't have a culture of really focused on on making sure that the data is correct. And yeah. that's because in the marketing world, it really didn't matter that much. Maybe being temper if you if you think of like gender on a person, if you were seventy percent accurate, then that was actually pretty good. And it was obviously a lot better than throwing you know than than, than flipping a coin or throwing dice. Yeah. And, and so it, it got you, it got you, you know, all the way there on, on, uh, if, so if you're sending a direct mail piece to somebody, but if you're making like really important machine learning decisions about the future, then you want that data to be as correct as possible yeah. because having errors in your data will really compound very, very quickly in the model. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah. I've seen your, uh, your values. On, the, on, on a blog on Medium, uh, safeguards values to achieve our vision. And I think part of what you just said was part of that. And one of the things that you also were talking about, we are enablers, not solvers. I think that is, uh, that is a, an interesting way to kind of give direction in your company, that it's about you know, really enabling the innovators in the marketplace to, uh, to do what they need to do best and uh, just be there in the background. That's right. And it does mean, it does mean for a data company like Safegraph, that you need to you need to recruit people with a different type of personality. You can't recruit someone who wants to be the star footballer or the star quarterback or the star baseball player and who wants to see their name in lights. You know, we're really about about like we we like to recruit people who have kind of an archivist mentality or the librarian or the person who you know the the researcher who wants to be behind the scenes. We're really about enabling other people to shine and not taking the credit ourselves. Yeah, I really understand why that is something that is really important to you, but I think a lot of other companies would do would fare well if they would take a similar mindset because so many companies think they are the hero where it actually they would do a lot better if they would make their customers the hero. Yeah, I, I think every company is different. So for us, sure. it has been really important. And I think and so having this humility has been really important for us because we are really we're really just an enabler and not the solver of the problem. Exactly. So one of the things, I'm currently writing a book, I was finishing it, by the way, about the 10 traits of a remarkable software company, just kind of, kind of taking the concept of a remarkable company. What do you believe is, is it that you need to do to become a remarkable company? If you would, for example, look at your own, at your own business. Well, one thing that companies don't think about enough is, is how to get leverage. And so the most companies are really just focused on just throwing people at the problem and not getting that much leverage. And if you think of a, a simple metric would be revenue per person, revenue per employee. For many companies, that, that number does not go up over time. And really every great company, that, that metric should go up over time. And having extra people in your company. Sometimes that's how people, that's how a lot of companies will talk about their success. They'll say we have a thousand people in our company and that's a way of saying that's a success. To me, that's a failure. Every time you have to hire someone, it means that that you you don't have the systems and that you have to actually have humans do it. And every time you hire somebody, it is going to be harder to communicate internally 
communication is very, very difficult. Even the best companies in the world have some sort of, you know, have to have a communication problem every time they hire someone. And the worst pro- companies in the world have an exponential, you know, they may have an N squared communication problem every time they hire somebody. So you should do everything possible to figure out how to hire as few people as possible. And that means you, you probably need to hire better people. You need to spend more money around them. You need to give them leverage. You need to give them better tools so that they can do more and communicate with. And so that doesn't mean you're really going to save any money by hiring less people. In fact, you may end up spending more money because you're, you're, you're paying them more and you're giving them more tools, et cetera. But you are going to be able to move much, much faster. I would say so. Yeah, I think it's also one of your one of your values, right? Respect our own time, get leverage, or is that a kind of a, right. a different a different angle? No, that, that's exactly right. So it's one of the core values in our company. We yeah. tell everyone when they join our company, we say, "You are Warren Buffett. You are a capital allocator. You have money to spend. We have plenty of money in our company. You have money to spend. Your goal is to get yourself leverage, and if you can get yourself leverage in in your own productivity." go do it. If you can get yourself leverage, if you can get your team's productivity up, do it. If you can get the whole company's productivity up by doing something, do it. Like your goal is to spend money to get leverage. Yeah, I think that's a very wise recommendation here. I like it. I like it. So so what are you, what are you most proud of? Getting, one of the, well, getting to the end, what, what is an anecdote of, of, of things that have been done with your product, air quotes, that you say, hey, this is this 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 amazed me. Well, we're really we're really passionate about making cities and places to live better places to live. And there's a lot of smart cities that are using our data. They're making their they're making their citizens' lives more fun. They're making their making citizens' lives more enjoyable. They're making it more safe. They're making yeah. the roads better. So those are maybe some of those things are things we aren't. These are not some of our biggest clients in terms of how much they pay us but they're some of our most rewarding clients. Yeah, at the end, it's about that, that, that enablement that you do to kind of do, to do great things. And I, I can agree with that. And I spoke to Jean-Francois, Jean-Francois Pourson from, from IBM. And he's one of the leaders in Canada that is kind of, kind of driving that whole smart city initiative. And they need a lot of that data. I agree with you. So what, I mean, I think we already talked about that, but getting, getting a, one question around yeah, the kind of the realization in business that data is the answer. What do you believe people should ask themselves in a different way or do in a different way in order to yeah, to get more traction, to get more leverage of, of their own company? How do you say that? How can we get the, the, the realization that data as a service is something that they actually need and that will that will help them get better? Well, for a lot of companies, maybe it's not the right thing to do immediately. So I don't think companies should or organizations should push themselves to do things that are unnatural or to do things to to do two things faster than they should. There are many software tools that they could use. So for instance, one of the things that people use our data for is site selection. So where should I put my store? And so maybe for a really sophisticated retailer like a Walmart, maybe they're going to do it internally. But there's actually a lot of great software tools that can help you do that. And if you're a retailer with 200 stores, there's no need necessarily for you to build this like deep capability of doing that internally. You can use one of these software tools or maybe use a consulting firm like KPMG or another great consulting firm to help you, to help you do that. Yeah, and they use your data in order to, to solve that particular problem. 
Yeah, correctly. And and again, our data is just an ingredient. So it's it's one of many, many factors that go in to solve that. We are not the end solution. We're just one piece and sometimes we're maybe just one percent of the solution. Yeah. Do you by the way have customers that actually that well that that buy or that subscribe to your data but also kind of offer that as a service to their customers? Or is that something that is illegal? <laughs> Yeah, well, their their data will get baked into maybe their product. So if you're using their product, our data will get baked into the product. We don't allow like our data to get like to get resold to somebody else. Obviously, that would hurt our business. But if it stays within someone's product, we think that's great. If it makes the product better and makes the yes. product experience better, if someone then can like export our data, then that could be a channel partner for us or a way to go do that. And that, that is one of the difficulties of having a data company is that data is very easy to, to move around and much easier to move around than an application, for instance. Yeah. And so you, you, you could have scenarios where people maybe don't treat the data with the, with the security that maybe it should be treated. Okay. And that was also maybe the, one of the things you pointed at, at are, are you ready for this? That's right. It's the security side on their side, protect your data. So cool. So what is next for you? What is your greatest aspiration with the company in the next 12, 24 months? Well, our goal is to really be the place that companies can go to, organizations go to, to get information about a physical place. As I mentioned, there there are over 7 billion physical places in the world. Today, we we track about 7 million of those places. So we have one one thousandth of all places in the world. So we have an extremely long way to go to get all the data about places. And then even for the places that we do track, we maybe track today 150 to 200 attributes about each place. There are maybe tens of thousands of interesting attributes that you can imagine on a given place. So we would like to have all the places in the world and then every attribute about a place. I don't think we'll achieve that in, in the next 24 months, but hopefully over the next five years, we'll be able to achieve that. Yeah, and the problem is also, of course, it's a moving target because by the time you're there, there are like there's 20% new places. That's exactly right. Yeah, it keeps it keeps changing all the time. Yeah, that's what you tell, told me in the beginning. So if there's anything that the audience could do for you, what would be your ask to them? Well, I would love any feedback. If someone wants to engage with me on Twitter, I'm at Oren, A-U-R-E-N on Twitter. I blog a lot on summation.net. Would love any people's feedback on any of my blogs. So any any other type of like feedback, I, I love to engage with people on both of those mediums. Good. And where can people go to find out more about your company? Then go to SafeGraph, so safegraph.com, learn a little bit more about it. And if they want to learn about, about how to run a data company and our deep thoughts about a data company, we published an extremely long blog about, about we call it the DAS Bible, D-A-A-S Bible. Um, it's yeah, it's a it's about a thirty four minute read, so it's gonna it's a little bit of a tome. But if you want to know everything that we know about how to run a data company, I encourage people to check it out. Yeah, I will make sure that it's part of the part of what will be loud and clear in the, in the podcast when it's when it's there. So, well, thank you very much. This was this was inspiring to me, and especially I, th- I like the twist that we have today on not so much of a solution, but really the fuel towards the solutions that that can make a lot of the innovation going in the world. So thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Perfect. It was a pleasure, Oren. Some highly valuable lessons learned today. And for everybody that's listening, thank you for tuning into this podcast. 
I had the honor to speak to Oren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise, and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.